Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! Hey guys, this week on The Ready State, we have Dr. Stacy Sims, who is an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist and author of one of my favorite health and fitness books of all time called Roar, which is uh, goes over the differences between men and women in sports and athletic performance and nutrition. Look, Stacy is a savage. If I could choose, go back in time and make Stacy my older sister, I would. And Stacy uh, is one of the most influential people on my thinking particularly around training women, but also around high-performance nutrition and particularly and hydration. hydration. Literally, I have called Stacy in to put out flames on some of the most crazy NFL, like she is the go-to. She is so smart and thoughtful, and I think you are going to learn a ton of practical takeaway things you can apply to uh, raising your own kids or as a coach of any stripes. Yeah, Stacy's down in New Zealand right now, and I'll tell you, in this podcast, there are a couple takeaways that will change my life. <laughs> and if you happen to be working with young people, this one's for you, like them all. But particularly if you work with girls, there are some nuggets here that will change how you think about coaching young women. Enjoy. Stacy Sims, uh, or should I say Dr. Stacy Sims, thank you so much for joining us again on The Ready State. We're so honored to have you here speaking to us about all things kids and kids health related exciting to talk to you guys again. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are in New Zealand. Tell us about right now where you are and sort of what your current brain iteration is. Like what, what are you working on? Uh, so there's a couple of things I'm working on. The biggest thing that tends to be the undercurrent of people's issues with gut health and performance, be it, you know, kids or adults is low energy availability. Um, so we're doing quite a bit of work at looking at different sports from rugby sevens to the Olympic weightlifting, um, even through like the targeted adolescent kids coming through, just trying to make sure that everyone has enough calories coming in to support both health as well as performance. And some of the commonalities that people come in, oh, I've got health I have issues where I'm bloated, I'm having diarrhea, I'm not sleeping well, my thyroid's a bit dysfunctional, my iron's low, I can't put on lean mass, I'm putting on belly fat, it all comes down to low energy availability. Um, and so like being able to have the whole picture of what's happening from a physiological standpoint and collaborating with my friend who does all the sociocultural aspects. So being able to understand where people are coming from with regards to food choices and habits, and then looking from, you know, the hard science, bench science of what actual the metabolic markers are and intervening with nutrient timing or overall calorie intake is changing people's performance and health in leaps and bounds. Holy moly. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we put some athletes in the sauna. We are, uh, look, you, you, I, I think about you as an expert in moving fluids from compartment to compartment. Mm -hmm. And I mean that, and and being one of the foremost sort of experts in looking at differences and sexes around performance and even nutrition, is that how you ended up in this kind of place? Because as you and I have talked about before, and something I will definitely have to talk about today, this really common concept among girls, particularly which is relative energy deficiency syndrome, which is where kids are under lots of stress, maybe have a body 
composition issue that they have to keep an eye on or have been taught that is important and don't eat enough or absorb enough is is that is this part of unwrapping that yeah totally because i mean leading up to it you know i did all of the fluid stuff and sex differences in fluid balance and how oral contraceptive pills affect all of that and that's still there and and i have some students working on a couple of different projects even things from like adolescent needs for protein intake all the way through postmenopausal women. But then you start looking at the complaints that I get from clinical practice, people coming in going, I'm just so tired all the time. My iron's low, but the doctor can't find anything um, wrong with me because I sit on the clinical aspects of okay. And when you really start digging and looking at what people are doing, yeah, they might be trying to lose weight or they're trying some crazy trendy diet and they're just not getting enough volume of food in to match what they need. And it's even endemic in like the recreational person who's doing CrossFit three times a week and they're not improving and they're putting body fat on and stuff. So when you start looking closely at the details and some of the advice that's out there, it's still very template mainstream. Everyone should do X, Y, Z. And that's not the case. It's like, you have to look at the sport, sporting history, dig into like, what else are people doing? And I, I'm getting a lot of um, parents contacting me for their kids who are running cross country or on the junior squad for track. And what the kids are only focused on is what their primary sport is. But then you start understanding that they're playing lacrosse or basketball um, during lunch hours, or they forget to eat. Or So it all contributes to this big myriad of let's tease it out and make it a little bit more individualistic to keep people's health and performance up. Man, there's a lot to unpackage there. Recently, I have been working alongside uh, a lot of high school coaches trying to support the, the adolescent teams that I'm seeing. One of the things that I'm, I'm running into a lot of, and you probably can relate, is that we're asking our young people to perform at a high level and almost be sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, I, I feel like the kids today that I'm seeing in high school and even in middle school look almost like sub-pro athletes in terms of their volumes, in terms of the severity of their training, and looking at the stress loads from the additional stress loads on top of being a, you know, by being a student athlete. And yet, don't have any of the of the consciousness or professionalism or or pieces in place to support that level of training. Yeah. As as we're and then we're seeing just normal normal accidents happen. You know the the injuries, the soft tissue. We talk about kids. I mean, just the 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 pain that they're experiencing. As we're we want to make sure that we're starting to you know we have you on the line here to really talk about what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong as as parents particularly or as youth coaches but what i hear from you is that man there are some complexities in the human system but we're making some basic errors around nutrition mm-hmm. and nutritional support around those those kids am i am i hearing you right yeah exactly and a lot of it stems to education a lot of coaches if they're working with both male and female athletes, they don't know how to tease it out and have proper conversations with girls versus boys. And they're also very driven to make their athletes successful, maybe not looking specifically at training loads and then just telling the kids to drink chocolate milk. Or they see a scrawny kid who wants to play football and they're like, you need to gain weight, but they don't tell them actually what they mean by gaining weight. Because a kid will hear, oh, I need to gain weight. So they'll just eat and eat and eat, put weight on, or maybe not, but it's not functional mass. It's not lean mass. And so the parents here at the coach say they need to gain weight for a particular position, 
or to challenge a position and the parents then become after the kids, oh, you need to eat, your coach says you need to eat, but there's no education behind it. So hopefully part of this podcast and the goal is to put some steps in for both coaches and parents to be able to guide their kids through this and putting some of the complexities of teasing out what happens at puberty as well that becomes a whole other myriad of both, you know, the psychological component of having a downturn with performance and how do you, you know, fuel for the growing metabolic system and the offshoot of, of hormones coming into play. And uh, before Juliet answers her next question, the fact that like kids love to eat really bitter greens. Yeah, they do. I can't get my kids to put down the cod liver oil. I'm like, put it down. You've had too much cod liver oil. Right, so, I mean, there are some real battles here. And, uh, yeah. you know, looking around, we're, we live up in Northern California, but looking around, I, I would have to give the most of the kids that I see really failing grades in terms of eating actual food. Mm, yeah, for sure. And a lot of it comes from, um, you know, the marketing and how we have an overabundance of cheap calories and they're engineered to taste good. So then you crave the fat and the sugar, and that's what you go after. And the marketing aspects of, of kids and product placement, all of it has a subliminal aspects which drive kids not to want to try what real food is. Yeah, it's a. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. I wanted to go back to what you said about girls versus boys and just let our listeners know, if they don't, that one of my favorite health and fitness related books of all, all time. time was written by you. Um, and it's called Roar, How to Match Your Food and Fitness to Your Unique Female Physiology for Optimum Performance, Great Health, and a Strong Lean Body for Life. And I was so shocked when it came out that you were the first person to actually ever talk about uh, sports differences between uh, men and women or boys and girls in this case. And um, I just loved it and ate it up. So first of all, thank you for that again. Um, and if I can turn it back to kids, you know, um, if we're, you know, if we're speaking to parents who have kids who are in athletics and trying to do the right thing around their nutrition and or youth coaches, you know, what are sort of the top things that you hope people know or learn after listening to this about how to approach girls and boys differently here, um, both from a nutrition and a training standpoint? Yeah. So prior to puberty, uh, boys and girls are very similar. Um, they don't have the exposure or the high level exposure of testosterone in boys. And wait a minute, wait a minute. Before, I, this is important, but boys and girls are not the same, Stacey. I mean, if you if you actually been around boys, <laughs> yeah. they're just maniacs. Okay, okay. That I'm aside. talking from a physiological standpoint. Psychological, forget it. I'll, I don't know. I think most days I'll trade my daughter for a son, but then I see my kid, my sister's kids. I'm like, oh, maybe not. So yeah, different. <laughs> Um, but from a physiological standpoint, they're very similar. And then when puberty hits, there's this huge change. So up to puberty, you know, girls and boys, from a sociocultural standpoint, the boys think that they can beat the girls. And even at my daughter's school, the boys will be like, we can beat the girls in soccer at lunchtime. And so I'll challenge the girls. I'm like, you have to beat the boys. And they'll go out and they'll beat the boys. And the boys will get all upset. And it's like, well, right now they can. But in about you know, seven or eight years, that's not going to be the case because when puberty hits, boys lean up, they get stronger, taller, bone density comes into play where they're stronger and it has to do with the testosterone exposure. So having protein and building bone mass and all that comes super important. But when 
the girls go through puberty and you have the upsurgence of estrogen, progesterone, the onset of the menstrual cycle, their bodies change in a way that they can't really relate to. Their hips widen. They start putting on belly fat. They slow down. Um, They're not quite in a proprioceptive place where they can do speed and movement that they're used to. And there's a downturn of performance for about a year as the body gets used to and understands what's happening with these hormone perturbations. And that is a key point where kids will start to go, well, I'm not doing well in my sport. I'm going to drop out. So Mm -hmm. parents understand that it's just a temporary blip and support your daughter by encouraging the movement, encouraging the physical activity and saying, you know, this is just a temporary thing. You can still work on aerobic capacity and building muscle and getting strong and working a little bit more on the plyo work so that the time and space and proprioception all come into play in the new body movements. Um, Then that sets the, the girl up for more success later in life instead of what's really common for me to hear is girls who get their period and they're synchronized swimmers or swimmers or runners. I got my period. I have to stop competing. Why is that? Well, because you can't swim when you have your period or you can't run well when you get your period. So trying to dispel that myth as well saying, okay, well, you got it. It's going to be irregular for the first six or seven months, and then your body's going to fall in the sink. So let's work for the next six or seven months to improve lean mass get you to change up your training a bit so that you're understanding how your wider hips are allowing you to run and really work with those kind of changes. I think that's so fascinating because I actually remember on our kids volleyball team, someone noted that kids start to actually drop girls, uh, girls started to drop off at 13 or 14 and uh, there was no discussion around um, this being the cause of that. So you mean physiology? Mm. Yeah. Physiology, you know, and, right. It just was like, Oh, people seem to drop off at 13, 14 and that's just what happens. Yeah. You know, mm. uh, but this is, this is really interesting because this is endemic. Uh, Stacy and I were at a, um, Naval special warfare talk. And one of the things they were, we were, that was coming up was that there were going to be a lot more high performance women in high performance military jobs as war fighters. And Stacey was saying, and I really appreciate this, you said, if you can't say the word period, you have a problem in your high-performance environment. And if you're not acknowledging this, then you are neglecting 50% of the population and you're actually not really a coach. And Mm. let me ask you then as the follow-on, because I really appreciate this, because this is going to hear, so many people are going to hear this alone, this one piece around their daughter's, you know, starting menstruation. And also, could I interrupt really quick? And in youth coaches too. I mean, if they know that this is happening in oh, yeah. this time of girls' lives, it's a time that they need extra support in sticking with their sport. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so if, if, if the psychology, I'm talking about the stress. No, I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> the other piece around this is: is are there some nutritional pieces that I should be thinking about as my girls age up? Are are there things that I can do besides some of the obvious?s Which is seems like. It seems like on the basis is that, you know, boy, kids really should, we, we got to get more veggies in our kids. We've got to get good fats in our kids. We've got to get lean proteins in our kids. Mm-hmm. We've got to get them actually eat enough, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But are there, are there differences here where I can make changes that might support my daughters through their uh, uh, atypical cycling of their, of their onset, early onset menstruation, menstruation or are there other factors in there? 
And also same question, but for boys. Yeah. So um, boys are relatively easy uh, because the idea is you have to feed them more food and lots of protein to support the muscle mass. Um, but girls are a little bit more difficult because of the fact that now their bodies are changing and they're putting on more body fat. They're very prime for eating disorders. So having conversations early, but also saying, okay, well, let's look at fueling for your training because that's how you can make the biggest impact without girls actually being conscious of the calories that they're taking in. If they're right on the cusp of being, oh, I need to stop eating so much because I'm putting on weight. First, we need to dispel that, that message because if you eat less, your body requires less and you put on fat. You eat more, you lose weight, you change your body composition. It's all about affecting your resting metabolic rate. Because when you start to conserve by not eating a lot, then your basic functions of your body slow down. And we don't want that to happen at the earliest stages of puberty because then that sets a woman up for the rest of her life. You want to encourage calorie intake to keep their resting metabolic rate up. And the first step in, in actually doing that is looking at the training and focusing on food in and around the training. Because if she's feeling strong and good and body composition is changing because she can actually perform well or get out of her training what she wants to, then the rest of it starts to become a little bit easier. So one of the key things is to look at that pre and post fueling for your daughter and one of the things that we were able to pull out from a study with um, sub-elite women of all ages is if you dial in the recovery nutrition, then you can kind of attenuate or slow down some of the negative effects of low energy availability. You won't get thyroid dysfunction. You won't get endocrine dysfunction. And you won't get into a low iron storage just because your body is so primed to take in nutrition right after training and use it properly, then you don't get into this metabolic quagmire that often happens at that early onset. Well, that leads exactly into one of the main questions that I was looking forward to asking you today. And I know you and I have discussed it before as well. And I also appreciate as a caveat that um, there's no universal approach for every child and also boys and girls may have different needs. Um, but I'm wondering uh, what advice you could give on pre, during, and post either game or practice or tournament nutrition. And if that's, you know, by boys and girls, that would be great. Um, the backstory is, and I'm sure you're starting to see this now that your daughter is six, but... Um, there seems to be this idea that, you know, if your kid has a one hour soccer game that they need to eat breakfast beforehand and then eat, you know, 500 calories mid game. And then definitely they need a snack immediately afterwards. Otherwise they might die. Yeah. And, um, so I know that not to be true. Right. But somehow that seems to be part of the, the sort of lore of parents that have kids who are playing sports. So I'd love to hear sort of based on your experience, what kids you eating before, during and after practice, if anything, um, and yeah, how you would yeah. approach that. And let me set this up just by saying that one of the things that you are an expert in is actually fueling athletes in the most stressful environments where it's not just a single effort, but it's repeated efforts. And people can see the kinds of work and your partner in documentaries like Eat, Race, Win, where you are fueling elite athletes with whole foods and sort of 
what I'm saying is this isn't, you're not just a professor and this isn't theoretical. You're actually on the fields feeling the most difficult stressed sports available, comma, what should I feed my kids? Exactly. That's all right. So um, I think part of the problem is people see sports nutrition and go, oh, we have to treat our kids kind of like little adults. So, you know, my tagline, women are not small men. Well, kids are not little adults. Um, And the volume of food that kids need to grow, like before puberty, they don't have really large stomachs. So you have to feed them regular um, on regular intervals. Otherwise, you know, they crash and it's a nightmare. So if they're having like a, a kid's soccer game, you have breakfast and then they go into the soccer game and making sure that they're hydrated. So making sure that they're having something that actually tastes good to them, but it's not Gatorade or Powerade because that stuff doesn't hydrate. It's just a bunch of crappy sugar. So it could be like squeezing orange juice into water with some maple syrup. So it tastes a little sweet. It's functional. And of course, Kelly, don't forget the little bit of salt. Um And so the hydration aspect is going to help keep them focused because you have a lot of cognitive decline and reaction problems if you're not hydrated. So in the soccer game, you need that. You need really quick reaction times. You need to see where the ball is going. So the hydration aspect is going to help. And then recovery, depending on what time of day it is, it could be lunch or it could be a a whole food smoothie because kids think, ooh, milkshake. Like we make what we call a funky monkey for Jera and it's bananas with almond milk and almond butter, a little bit of, um, of this, um, berry super fruits protein where the protein is coming from seaweed, like spirulina and you blend it all together and it's called a funky monkey because it tastes like a tropical smoothie. Um, so being a little bit inventive and being prepared helps, but it's not about like, okay, have breakfast, then an hour before the game, let's give them, you know, a cliff bar. And then during the game, they need to have some gels or orange slices or Powerade. And then afterwards they have to have chocolate milk. And then we go out for lunch and then you know, that's just way too much. Well, I really appreciate that. And I would, uh, I have to go back actually for a second because I, as you were talking, I was remembering Kelly saying, um, based on conversations with you that, you know, if you're a youth coach who coaches girls and you're not, you don't know when they're having their period, then you're not going to be a great youth coach. Well, I don't Um, know if I said youth coach, but definitely I was talking about coach, coach. Well, and I think this goes, I guess, for any coach who has girls who might have their period, um, and I agree with that, but practically speaking, you know, how, how would you suggest, and if you agree with that, by the way, um, practically speaking, how would you suggest a coach of any stripe figure that out in a way that's not awkward? And then how would they then apply it to their training or advice or coaching? Yeah. So in that, any way. that conversation is hard enough for a girl to have with a parent, right? So if you're talking to, about a girl who's just starting your period and then has to talk to a male coach, it's not going to happen. No. The way that I've been working it is empowering the girl. So there are different apps that she can use, um, download on computers. A lot of teenage girls now have phones. My favorite really is Fitter Woman app um, because not only- so that's Fitter Woman? Yeah. Um, and I'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah, there's a twofold aspect to it. So a girl can download it and have it for herself and it takes wellness notes. It also gives like different n- nutritional- quote, nudges where it's like your period is getting ready to come in the next few days, according to what you put in. So you might feel a little bit tired, but we can counter that by adding more protein and and a little bit more carbohydrate because your body needs that. Right now. Dope. 
Um, so it's kind of private messaging that, that she'll get. But from a coach's standpoint, if the coach invests in a, a team app, so it's 150 bucks for 15 athletes, which is pretty inexpensive from a coach point of view, then the athlete can log on on her own private, keep all that information to herself, but then the coach can also have a view. So you don't have to have that conversation. So it becomes more of a, a kind of an understanding that they're both doing this, but the direct wording isn't there. And the coach right, can There's not the face to face conversation. And there's right. a team version of this fitter woman. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I know. Fantastic. It's great. It's great. And it, it then allows both to understand what's going on. So if then the coach sees that the girl is getting ready to have her period and in that time frame, you know, from the wellness notes she's put in, feels flat one day before a period or two days before, then you know that maybe we should have an easier day of training just for her or for the other girls that are in the same phase or don't expect a PR from her on that day, so don't be so hard on her. Um, so it's just a couple of nuances, just the basic understanding of what's happening with the cycle because the um, kind of the information that comes to the coach will also describe what's happening with the patterning of the hormones so that the coach can understand just in a general scope what happens when estrogen and progesterone come up as well. Um, and it's, I'm finding that a really good tool for my young runners because then they can be like, oh, I'm not going to run very well today. And so I know that that's because their period is getting ready to just start. So it's just so much easier to be able to have that. And in this day and age when apps are so common and prevalent and there isn't a lot of face-to-face -face conversation, it becomes a very powerful tool for both the athlete, the parent, and the coach. One of the things, this already is worth the price of admission. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like you just changed the generation of coaches and athletes. Yeah. The second piece is, and I, and hopefully this, have you found that this is also an easy catch if a coach asks this of her, his or her team, that when we can see girls who aren't getting their period and jump in appropriately and look and have this conversation on stress? Because I think one of the, one of the, you know, because we have you here, you know, I have recently been on two cases, very, very high level sport where women have had signs and symptoms and conditions. And the, I'm talking about the best in the world where people are consistent with this relative energy deficiency syndrome or what they used to call the, the female triad. And, mm -hmm. you know, what I'm saying is that I don't think you age up out of this and that if anything, it, the, some of the patterns that we set early with our youth athletes really ghost them you know, onwards because it works. It's always worked. They, they manage it. And then suddenly it doesn't work. And it's really been difficult to sort of dig out, you know, and help these coaches really try to make sense of this complexity around, Hey, I don't think your your athletes are eating enough or, or absorbing what they're eating. And you're seeing these kind of weird soft tissue dysfunctions. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like case in point this morning, I got an email from the U S from a coach that I've worked with off and on for many, many years. And he's like, Hey, just a quick question. I have this 20 year old who is 120 pounds. She's training consistently. And this is her email. Hey, yeah, having stomach problems, lots of GI distress. Feel like I have to have diarrhea, but I don't. Um, and then I feel like I can't eat. And so then I email back. I'm like, this is a classic case of low energy availability. This one. And so then I start listing all the other signs and symptoms that come with low energy availability. Because he says like, oh yeah, she doesn't get a period. And I was like, well, that's a one of the first signs 
besides thyroid issues is that this woman is in problems. So I sent him a quick um, spreadsheet calculation to see how deficient she was. Uh, estimate how many calories she burns in a day through her training and how many calories she, she takes in. She was in a calorie deficit of 800 calories a day. Oh. So, I mean, you can get into that really easily if you're not aware. Like if you're not feeling well or even your training ramps up and you're not matching intake. So it doesn't have to be a conscious thing either. So just being aware of that and understanding that your calorie needs are very dynamic, even could be day-to-day dynamic. If you have a really hard day with many training sessions and you have a low activity session. So it's understanding, again, like the training load and what's required and making sure that someone doesn't get into the slow state. Because even four days of low energy availability, you start to get thyroid dysfunction. And if you start getting thyroid dysfunction at a very early age, then you're pretty screwed for life. Um, So again, yeah, it is an education thing and just understanding that someone might not be consciously trying to cut calories, but being on top of it and reminding people that when you get to a certain high performance state, if your period is irregular, then something's wrong. So I have a conversation a lot with GPs who automatic response of someone who has secondary amenorrhea, meaning that they had their periods and then they stopped. We'll put them on an estrogen patch because they need estrogen. I'm like, well, actually, no. They don't have their period because something is going on. If you put them on a synthetic hormone, you're covering and masking the issue. And we don't understand what's going on because you are masking it. So don't put them on a hormone. Let's try to figure it out. If it's four months of an intervention through um, putting them through specific food intake, like using maca powder and black cohosh, which work as adaptogens to increase estrogen naturally, then let's do that. But give us at least four to six months to figure it out. Don't put them on synthetic. And getting doctors to understand that and getting parents to buy into it because there's still this, you know, doctors are up on the top pedestal and parents don't know where else to go. So they go to a doctor and get this advice. It's not the proper advice for a young athlete or a high-performance long-term athlete either because it does run the ranks all the way through. Even just a study here, 55% of recreational female athletes are in low energy availability. And that's not even high-performance sport. That's just the general population. Holy, That's pretty shocking. Holy hell. <laughs> um, I have to go back to something in part because and uh, Lisa, who's sitting here with us, will appreciate this. Um, You mentioned it in passing, but Gatorade. Mm. And I'm always shocked to see, again, living in Marin County, where we live, um, the birthplace of the farmer's market and some other uh, so-called healthy eating habits. Um, I still see Gatorade and Powerade being served up at, you know, 90% of sporting events, either as a team drink or individually by certain parents to certain kids. Um, and I think maybe there's a there is a mistaken perception that it's both a hydrating source and it's not bad for you because I think it does not have high fructose corn syrup. Um, I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about your thoughts on Gatorade. <laughs> just just so that one we can uh, point everyone to here and we don't have to have this conversation again. Yes, exactly. Okay, so there's two. Aspects. This is selfish, actually. <laughs> There's two aspects of it. So if we take it from like the cultural side of things, the perception of Gatorade being Empowery being such a great drink is the marketing, right? You have some of the top athletes that are um, 
sponsored by Powerade or Gatorade. Even the NCAA is partnered with Gatorade. It doesn't mean that the athletes drink it. It just means that Gatorade has the rights to put their stuff on everything. And people gaff the Gatorade bottles with other stuff that actually works. And what I mean by actually works is when you look at the formulations of the Gatorades and the Powerades and the other typical sports drinks, they're too high in carbohydrate to actually hydrate. Um, what happens with that higher concentration is it'll go into your small intestines and increase the pressure, we call the osmotic pressure. And your body's response to increased pressure in these compartments is to dump water. So you're effectively dehydrating yourself when you drink these typical sports drinks. There's not enough sodium and electrolytes in them to counter some of that either. So you're diluting everything and putting it all into the small intestines. And the ramifications of that is effective dehydration, bloating, GI distress. Um, and then as you exercise for longer periods of time, it becomes very cloy and sweet. So you don't want to drink, which promotes even more dehydration. If you're looking to hydrate, you want something that has... Mm, for three to four grams of carbohydrate per 100 mil. So if I translate that back to the U.S., yes, um, you're looking at maybe uh, six grams of carb per eight ounces. Um, and that it would be the top end max. And you want a little bit of sodium because you need some sodium to help pull that fluid across. So, yeah, when I see kids drinking Gatorade, I'm like, what are you doing? You're feeding your kids sugar water. But not only that, look at the color. Like what, what thing in nature is identified by the color? I'll have the red Gatorade. I'll have the blue Gatorade. You don't order real food by the color of it unless it's blueberries and that's in the blue blueberry word, right? So, so if I'm trying to sabotage the other team, I should continue to deliver Gatorade to the other team. Is that what you're saying? Deliver Gatorade and gels, and then they'll be on the <laughs> side of, they'll be on the sideline or in the bathroom with diarrhea and stomach cramps. Perfect. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. And I just want to point people back to um, you've written a lot about this. Your wonderful book, Roar, is a great resource on this, and, it's, and just showing and and really, is it on? Is um, Eat, Race, Win? Is it on Netflix right now? Where's that? Uh, Amazon Prime. It's on Amazon, and uh, if you are interested in looking at the, the the functional application of really high end sports nutrition, there's I, I, the, the series is is short and very bingeable about your work uh, with your partner in the Tour de France, and uh, it's a good example of wow, like there's people are actually eating food. Yeah, yeah, and there and um, just to let our listeners know, there's also a cookbook called Eat, Race, Win. Um, both the documentary and the cookbook we can put in the show notes as well. Oh, thanks. We, uh, we just, Juliet and I just rode, uh, the grand fondo, the medium route. And I'm happy to say I only ate snacks that were based on food and not that much, actually. It's pretty amazing that you just need to eat some and, you know, it's, it's very reasonable and, you know, watching people choke down these sugar drinks and stuff. It's actually a little bit shocking still. I know it's endemic and people think that they have to have 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour in endurance. And that's. It's not true. Not true at all. Um, unless you are one of the 13 highly trained male triathletes that the study was done on, you're going to end up slowing down and having stomach problems. 
It's amazing. Amazing what that happens. It's amazing. I'm always amazed because it's just such a not part of our universe when I see how common it is out there. I'm shocked. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done a lot of talking about girls, and I don't want to leave out the people with boys. And you did mention early on in the episode, um, you get calls from parents who need advice on a boy trying to gain weight. And again, I realize it's not the same prescription for every child based on what sport they're doing, but are there some, you know, universal pieces of advice for parents with boys who are trying to put on mass? Yeah. Yeah. So in the past 10 years, there's been this really interesting um, upsurgence with body dysmorphia in boys and men. Um, for the fact that if you look at like the 80s and 90s, WWF, they're very rotund, big kind of almost sumo wrestler type icons. And now it's changed to being super lean and buff and strong. And that is what a lot of the power sports and like football type um, coaches and stuff will actually push to have their kids look like because they think that being lean and powerful also means that they're going to be good on the field. Um, So when you have a boy and you can kind of understand where they came from, like what did they play with as action figures when they were a kid? that also has an influence. Um, But one of the things besides just encouraging good food intake and protein intake is they fall into low energy availability really easily as well. There's this huge increase in boys and young adults, um, young male adults who are having low testosterone and um, stress fractures because again, they're not eating enough or they're only eating really high protein diets and not getting enough carbohydrate in to support the growth and development of just their functional organs. So if you are are concerned for your boy and looking at whatever sport they're in, again, it's supporting lean mass and bone development as well as their endocrine system. So you need good whack of protein and carbohydrate, Um, but also making sure that they don't follow into the whole low energy availability. Just like I was discussing with the girls, focus first on the training and, and the aspects of food intake in and around the training because then that's going to help them understand that if I don't eat enough, I'm not going to feel well and I'm going to be flat. And that's not what I want out of this. Do you think um, as general, are there good guidelines around fueling, you know, just general food, you know, for, for boys and girls who are obviously growing and potentially even in sports or not in sports. I mean, it's interesting. You're one of your friends uh, who've introduced to me and who've become my good friend, Nick Gill, you know, it's a little bit shocked sometimes in the, around the United States when we're having these conversations around food, because maybe uh, New Zealand has a different approach where we're seeing kids eat a lot more whole foods. But, you know, pizza, crap, I think it's difficult for parents to wrap their heads around what is a good meal and how, how should I be feeding my kids? Do you have good recommendations or guidelines? I mean, it feels common sense, but it's, it always bears repeating because I, I see parents making this error all the time, especially mm-hmm. when I see girls exercising. And yeah. if I could just say, since you are the mother of a six-year-old daughter, I think you could maybe even answer this question by giving us a snapshot into how you feed your own kid. Yeah, but she's, I mean, this kid is a ninja. <laughs> yeah, well, um, New Zealand is not different from the States. The thing about Gilly and myself and most of us here, we sit in the Adam Center of High Performance and we're surrounded by elite high-performing athletes who have dietitians, performance dietitians who tell them how to eat. You have a professional chef that cooks for them during their training camps. 
Gilly's involved with the All Blacks. He's a strength conditioning coach for them. So he's in that realm all the time. And his, he has a lifestyle block, grows avocados on the side. And we're all kind of in that whole California bubble where we think about farm to table and we're in that same mindset. So when you take all of us out of that and look at the reality of life, it's a big shock. Um, and it is part of what is a, you know, it's a privilege. It's a, it's an upper um, middle class or upper economic stream privilege, but you then have a whole group of people who are like, I don't have that much disposable income. I know I need to be eating real food, but what is that? How do I get it? There are um, urban deserts where there isn't a local grocery store that's handy and accessible, but there's the quick mart or um, a four square or something, or it's the fast food restaurants. Um, so it is an education about parents and there have been some interventions in schools where if the kids are exposed to fruit and veg and they understand how that makes them feel, then they go home and tell their parents, Hey, I need this. So it's a mixed education process. Um, how do we approach parents and get parents to understand that is the ultimate question really? Cause then you have to take in the cultural aspect. Where do they live? What do they want out of their kids? What kind of disposable income do they have? But what shocks me here in New Zealand is like you can buy a two liter or three liter thing of Coke for four dollars. But then like the 500 mil is 480. So it's more expensive to buy the small one. So if you go into the shop and you're looking to feed a whole family and you can buy, you know, two to three liters of sugar sweetened beverage for under five dollars. But if you want to get some water or something that's good for you, you're looking at twice that much. Again, it's that price drive. So how do we educate parents about what is good food and what is real food? That's a whole nother platform. That's another business we could start. Um, but the education behind it is still repeating what the likes of like Marion Nestle and Michael Pollan say, is, you know, don't eat a lot. If it comes in a package or made in a plant, put it back. If it comes from a plant, then eat it. And if you're looking for, you don't have to be vegetarian, but just reducing meat intake because You'll get enough to support lean mass. You'll get enough to support health, but then you also can decrease the environmental factors, the carbon emissions and that kind of stuff. So it's a huge quagmire. I wish I had a really simple answer, but I don't. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, you know, uh, what I see where we are is that actually people are educated and do have the economic means and it's still a challenge. And right, I, they're eating. We see this all the time yeah. at dinner parties where adults are eating wonderful food and then their kids are eating quesadillas and yeah. chicken fingers. Yep. Yeah. That and I just, I sometimes yeah. wonder if there's, I think maybe, you know, unless your kid is overweight or you don't have some sort of external signal that their diet's not working for them, that, that parents, um, it's just one less battle. They don't want to fight. It's easier to feed your kid a goldfish than an apple maybe. But is there anything about sort of long, the kid's long-term health you can say about, sort of giving into a diet like that, that would actually motivate parents to make the battle worth it. Well, you know, for us, it's yes. a, we have one child in our family, um, Caroline, who's an extremely picky eater and, um, it's a challenge for us, but we don't give up on it. Yeah. yeah and yeah, which yeah, maybe yeah. this ties us back into what you were talking about around gut health, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, our gut microbiome is, is pretty established by the time we're three but there is the opportunity to change it. If you're constantly feeding your kid like processed food, goldfish, chicken nuggets, quesadillas, 
you know, the white processed stuff, you're encouraging the growth of the bacteria that makes the kid crave sugar, makes the kid crave the processed foods, puts on or can overexpress the gene that triggers obesity. Um, And that's something that you can't change through lifespan. I mean, you can start having a wider diversity diet when you become a teenager in adulthood to kind of try to fix the gut. But this over, um, I guess the best example to say is this over identification of ADHD or the hyperactivity of the kid can stem from what's happening from the gut microbiome and the foods that they're eating. I had, you know, I tried to do the best with my kid and my husband is like, let her have this. I'm like, no, no treats every day. Like, so I'm a little bit hard, but I still have to give and take. And there was this one where she had these organic little, um, like cheese, cheese it things. And she went wackadoo, like crazy off the wall, just hyper manic. And then an hour later it was all tears. And I was like, what happened? She was having these organic cheese things and, oh, it must have been the organic cheese things because she wasn't used to that kind of stuff and made her crazy. So if you're looking at your kid and they're having all these like episodes, it's ups and downs, it's not because they're a kid and they have tired spells. It's you want to moderate the energy and build a good gut microbiome so that energy levels are even and they're not so like up and down. And I mean, I see it too. You go out and you're eating well, you're eating salads and the kid is getting the, you know, the kid's menu. And you look at the kid's menu here in particular, there's always three things. It's like chicken nuggets, white quesadilla, hamburger with French fries. Like none of that is here plus macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have that here, but it's like, why would I feed my kid that? And then flying, we do a lot of flying being at the bottom of the world and you order a kid's menu because you're like, oh, maybe smaller portions. Oh no, no, no. It is something like white pancakes with maple syrup and sugared, sugared yogurt with a juice. It's like, why would I feed my kid that? But you know, and then you can order special food for you that's vegan or vegetarian or whatever it is, or even the general meal. And it's not full of sugar and processed stuff. I'm not saying that flight food's the best, but just the identification of what a kid should eat perpetuates the bad habits. And you can be like me and be that mom where you go, no, you can't feed my kid a chocolate chip for cleaning up. She should clean up because she should clean up, not be rewarded by food. She should be able to walk up the mount and come down and not expect an ice cream like everyone else because doing that is fun. It's not to be rewarded by food. So there are habits that parents fall into because it's the cultural norm. But if you look at what the cultural norm is doing to our kids, it's awful. Yeah, it's really awful. Just two quick um, things. We're actually gonna, um, going to be interviewing Dr. Jose Greenspoon on this podcast and Greenspawn, excuse me. And he, uh, he told me that, you know, the predictions are that I think something like 60 or 70% of three-year-olds today are going to be obese by the time they're 35 years old. So the outlook is not good. And I agree with you about the kids menu. It's always such a stark contrast when we travel in Europe because there they don't have a kids menu. You just order off the menu. And then they, if your kid, if you have a kid with you, they ask if you would like a half portion and charge you half the price. Yeah bring you half the food that's from the regular menu. And that's so refreshing. Yeah. It's such a different, um, such a different thing. Anyway, go ahead. I I just say, you know, I, I, people hear this and you know, it it is a constant battle. Is it too late? Is there ever, I mean, if I'm an adult and I hear some of these things, holy crap. I mean, can I begin to reprogram my kids or have this conversation with my kids? Is is it going to help 
I mean, is it, is there ever we hit a tipping point, or or can I begin these conversations now and start to uh, improve my kids' diet just by trying to get them to eat another vegetable during the day? You can. It's never too late to start change. Never too late to start change. But the I think one of the problems that parents who are super motivated to help their kids do is they change everything all at once. So if you are going to remove sugar or try to reduce sugar intake, you can't do it all at once because it's about a three-week thing where the gut is going to make them crave sugar and be in a nightmare. So it's slow implementation of change, substituting out a packaged good for real food. Forget the fruit sticks and the fruit roll-ups. Give them some fresh strawberries or give them an apple because that tastes so much better. And like I've said before, we are not as smart as nature. As soon as you start engineering food, you're taking away so many of the cofactors that nature has put in to make things like fructose not harmful, that when you start ingesting all this fructose and fruit roll-up type stuff, you're doing a lot of harm to your body. So real food is the way to go because it was grown for a purpose. It feeds us for a purpose and it's the way that, you know, we should be eating. So small little changes, it's going to help that I played a lot of soccer in Europe as a kid, and I remember eating a lot of orange slices. Yeah, I know. We that's, all we, that's all we ate. Is, the only food AKA I ever saw at a sporting event as a two kid orange, was an orange slice. Two yeah. orange slices. And what I realized now is like, man, mom, you didn't love me. You didn't salt that orange slice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Salted watermelon um, summer and salted orange slices. Yeah. Stacy, we're getting close to the end of our time here, and there's about a thousand more things we want to discuss. But I know you mentioned that you want to put out a second edition of Roar to include information on heat, which I know is something that you've been studying, mm -hmm. um, a heat primer for female athletes. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, including, um, you know, what you know about heat affecting children. Is this something we need to work on with, with kid athletes? Um, this, this I know is, that's a very a broad topic. and gigantic question, but at least if we could touch on it while we talk today, I think that would be great. Yeah. So again, like I said, before the onset of puberty, boys and girls are very similar. Um, but the thing is they don't have a fully developed thermoregulatory system. So they don't sweat. They don't have a thirst mechanism that is advanced and mature. So you have to encourage drinking encourage them to eat the orange slices with a little bit of salt um, so that they can stay hydrated because um, they don't tolerate heat very well. They can't really offload a lot of the heat because of the, the immature sweat system. Um, so making sure that you have cool things for them to drink using um, like one of the biggest mistakes that is done in the States is changing cotton t-shirts under football pads in the summertime. Um, because, oh, it's wet, but you want that dampness against the skin because it helps offload the heat. So just making sure that you're able to address some of the heat issues and, and keep them um, hydrated and don't change their shirt is going to help them in a hot summer day. But as soon as puberty hits, and again, you have this perturbations of hormones, this is where changes happen specifically to women. So when you have elevation of um, estrogen and progesterone, internal temperature goes up by about a degree Fahrenheit. Um, you end up kicking out more total body sodium, so you have less body sodium stores. Your thirst sensation is muted, so you don't feel like drinking. Um, your plasma volume or the watery part of your blood drops by about 8%. So knowing that that happens when you're about 10 days before your period starts, you need to be more conscious on staying hydrated. And when we talk about um, like heat acclimatization and, and acclimation, 
Um, women need that primer because of those things that happen in that high hormone state. So what we do is we put women in the heat, pull them back out, let them cool down, because that will reset their thresholds as if they were in the high hormone state. So then we put them back in the heat and have them do their acclimation session. And what that does is it then makes them have the same kind of blood volume expansion and threshold changes as men who just go in the heat to do the acclimation. So there are small little nuances that happen between men and women that make us more tolerant or less tolerant to the heat. Um, how do I come live in your closet? Just come on over. I feel like I could have been, I feel like I could have been somebody. I could have achieved something <laughs> if I only had a Stacy Sims in my back pocket. Well, I'm still waiting for you guys you to what, come down um, and visit. I know. Oh, we will. We just will keep waiting for summer, but uh, apparently as the world's climate maybe gets uh, a little more interesting right now, you are on a perpetual state of winter. Until January, and then it becomes super hot like last summer. It was awesome. So, <laughs> But like all two weeks of your summer, is that what you're saying? Um, if you're further south than we are, then yeah. But we're up on the northeast part of the North Island and we'll get about uh, three months of good weather, and then the rest of it's winter. <laughs> <laughs> We're still coming because it's you know a recreational paradise, and we like to recreate. We so do love recreation. We we will be there, Stacy Sims. Stacy Sims, we will uh, point everyone at Roar. Where your um, tell us where we can find you on the interwebs, where people can uh, because I think you know once you sort of become a Sims conscious, Sims aware, you really realize that there are just some very actionable and small steps that really radically change how you feel during the day and how sort of how you feel and are able to recover from just being a busy person. I mean, it, this isn't just for athletes. You're, I think we're making some, we like to call adaptation errors here where it's around a lot of the things. You know, you told me something a long time ago, just like stop drinking your calories. Yeah. You know, that, that alone has served a generation of athletes that I've come in contact with. So where do we find you? Uh, so Facebook is Dr. Stacy Sims. My Twitter handle is Summer Stack. Um, and then our Eat, Race, Win website has um, different blogs and recipes and little small touches that you can do to implement during the day to make you feel better. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. We will include all that in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time and sharing all this amazing and, knowledge and with more us. more importantly... Maybe I'm not going to mess up with my daughters as badly <laughs> as I would have without you without in our having lives. this conversation. So thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of MobilityWad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. 
He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it. You better stop it.